a big part of eating disorders is not knowing how sick you are, recovery being ambivalence at best. Like that is a part of the disorder. And you are at every single meal and snack, like fighting urges to overexercise and binge and purge. You're fighting your brain all the friggin' time. And it's really hard to ask people to do that alone. You really need support around you to help you do that. Welcome to Equip to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. I'm Jessica Flint, and today I'm joined with Christina Safran. Christina is blazing a trail for putting accessible eating disorder treatment on the map. Christina knows firsthand the pain of living with an eating disorder and the power of the family system in helping to overcome and heal an eating disorder. Christina has spent more than half her life, yes, half her life, helping people connect to the treatment they need. At the age of 15, she started the nonprofit Project Heal and has since gained momentum in her mission to bring eating disorder treatment that works to everyone who needs it through Equip, a fully virtual eating disorder treatment center. Christina embodies the steadfast perseverance it takes to reach a heartfelt, meaningful goal. I'm so excited for you to listen in as Christina and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Christina. It is so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. And you just have such a magnificent mission. And I'd love to start off with the bigger picture. How did this mission to change the way eating disorder treatment is delivered start for you? This is a big mission. And in what ways did your lived experience play a role? In all the ways. Uh, This has really been building my whole entire life. So often joke that I've been in this field for my my whole entire life, diagnosed with anorexia when I was 10 years old, struggled throughout my adolescence. I spent essentially my entire freshman year of high school, not in high school, in and out of four different hospitals for a total of seven months. And when I got out and inevitably started to slip because I didn't know how to take care of myself in real life with triggers and my family didn't know how to help me either. Doctors said to my parents, you know, send her to a long-term facility across the country and don't have a lot of hope. People don't recover from these illnesses. I'm very glad that they did not take that advice and (laughs) instead dove into the research and found out about family-based treatment, which at the time was just really coming over from the UK, the Maudsley Hospital, to the United States. We now know it's the leading and really only evidence-based treatment for kids, adolescents, and young adults with eating disorders and essentially understands that eating disorders are brain disorders. They have some of the strongest genetic and neurobiological underpinnings of any mental illness. And, you know, I often say for an illness that requires you to fight your brain many times a day, it's not only ineffective, but frankly, kind of mean to treat it as an individual illness. You really need people around you to help you with that. And so that's what it does. It takes the healthy people in the household to structure the home environment for pro-health. It was the single hardest year of my life, uh, definitely harder than the year that I was in and out of uh, hospitals and, and traditional treatment. And it was undoubtedly the thing that got me better. I could not, the eating disorder was way too strong for me to be able to fight it myself at, at that time. And the beautiful thing about family-based treatment is that I was in life. I was going to high school. I developed some friendships. I got a role in the school play. So there actually became consequences to relapsing. I had built up enough reasons to give life a try. And so that certainly was the thing that got me into recovery. And I'm sure we'll talk about uh, the 
temperament traits that make you vulnerable to an eating disorder are pretty awesome temperament traits when you learn how to not channel them against yourself and channel them in the right direction. I think certainly my story and the story of so many people that we both know, most people with eating disorders, in fact, and so I learned just how grossly inequitable and inaccessible this field is that 80% of the 30 million Americans who struggle don't get treatment and had seen, you know, people who I was in treatment with being kicked out uh, before they were ready and, and not having any good follow up treatment and uh, said, this is awful, I have to do something about it and was very aware that frankly, I was so fortunate in that I did get good treatment. Um, my insurance covered some of it. I had a family that could afford to pay a lot of money out of pocket for all the care that uh, was not covered and was aware that like I didn't want recovery as is fairly common and we'll talk about. And thankfully, so many things worked in my favor where I got it, but I was really the exception rather than the rule. And so many people weren't getting treatment. And so at 15 said this, should not be the way that it is. We got to do something about it. And uh, I reconnected with a friend that I had met in treatment, Leanna Rosenman. We helped one another to get better in our own eating disorders. And as our conversation shifted from our own issues to broader issues in the field, kept circling around this access issue. So we decided to start Project Heal. Uh, and Project Heal it started it originally to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment and just quickly took on a huge grassroots life of its own. We had 40 chapters across the country before we had a single staff member. And this is, you know, 15 years ago. People, there's still a whole lot of work to do and a whole lot of stigma about eating disorders. But when you look back at that time, it's like, wow, we've actually come a long way because it was so stigmatized. Nobody talked about it. And I think we collectively were some of the first to really talk about our own personal stories and put ourselves out there. And that really drew a lot of people in. And so I will say that I was just so fortunate from a young age to have found my passion and to really be able to learn from some of the leading clinicians and researchers in the field, along with most importantly, just thousands and thousands of people who had struggled with this illness and their family members and really began to understand more and more about the myriad barriers to access. And then also I was running a nonprofit where eating disorder nonprofits, unfortunately, raise less than $10 million a year. That is it. Like that is bananas. And that's due to all of the horrible stigma around them. But suffice it to say, realize that it was going to be really hard to affect the transformational change that was necessary in this industry through a nonprofit vehicle alone. Uh, and then additionally, saw more and more people applying to my scholarship program with kind of access to acute care, facility-based care, and then no quality outpatient care afterwards. And so just setting them up for the cycle of relapse, which never made a whole lot of sense to me. And so after many years of trying to solve this alone in the nonprofit sector, said, I think I need to try a new approach and uh, connected with my co-founder, Aaron, who was at UC San Diego's Eating Disorder Research and Treatment Center, where people were flying from all over the world to get treatment. And we said, there's got to be a better way to really democratize access to this thing. And so about three and a half years ago, started Equip to do just that. So amazing. And I remember you telling me like many years ago how with Project Heal, like you were getting so many applications that you didn't have enough treatment scholarships for. And it was just like, there's a problem here. Like a lot of people need help and they don't have the means, the resources. And so I love how you have channeled just, just inner entrepreneur that's just so innate in, in you to find the solution to the problem. And, yeah. and I admire that because you can't just sit there being like, well, 
you know, we're only getting 11 million. I mean, 11 million collectively, that's, that's concluding all these other nonprofits. So it's- I know. All the nonprofits collectively, when you look at, you know, there are 30 million people who struggle with this. And it's the same. That's for nonprofit funding. Research funding is less than a dollar per affected individual from that NIH as opposed to like $100 for schizophrenia and autism with a similar prevalence. Like it is horrifying and it's unjust. And it goes back to, again, this stigma around what eating disorders are. And frankly, even when you think about Project Heal, the fact that two teenagers needed to start a nonprofit to raise money for people to get treatment for a life-threatening condition. Like, mm. it's kind of bananas when you actually go back and think about that. Like, that shouldn't have to happen. And going back then to family-based therapy, and so that became kind of the whole nexus for Equip, right? And you guys have this model of family-based treatment. Can you kind of explain a bit to someone who's never heard that term, family-based treatment or the Maudsley approach, like what it is in in kind of a a brief nutshell? Family-based treatment, put simply, is this idea that you take the healthy people in the household to structure the home environment for pro-health behaviors. Um, A big part of eating disorders is not knowing how sick you are, recovery being ambivalence at best, like that is a part of the disorder. And you are at every single meal and snack, like fighting urges to overexercise and binge and purge. You're fighting your brain all the friggin' time. And it's really hard to ask people to do that alone. You really need support around you to help you do that. The other thing that family-based treatment recognizes is there needs to be a focus first on nutritional rehabilitation. It is not sufficient. That is not all, but it is necessary. And I think for a very long time, the thinking by well-meaning clinicians was, let's let's work on the motivation. Let's motivate you to want to do this work, to you know want to like your body, to want to get better, and then we'll feed you. And we just know that that doesn't work. That the, there are a lot of interactions with a body being in a starvation state in terms of increasing anxiety and depression and compulsivity that you really need to do that work first. You kind of can't therapize a malnourished brain. Now, not sufficient. You need more than that once you get to that place, but that needs to be a necessary first ingredient. So those are the two parts of FBT, focus on first on nutritional rehabilitation and needing support around you that are absolutely critical. What I'll also say is that while family-based treatment is the leading and only evidence-based treatment that we have for kids, adolescents, and young adults with eating disorders, it only results in full recovery for about 50% of adolescents. So like, that's not great. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's like heads or tails. (laughs) And that's like a lot of our treatments in eating disorders just like aren't that effective. And so we are not pure FBT at Equip at all. We've really enhanced the model based on learnings from thousands and thousands of patients and families who've had success, but frankly, more importantly, who haven't had success with the model because traditional family-based treatment is therapy once a week, highly manualized, and it doesn't work for a lot of people. And so we've really enhanced the model based on all of these lived experiences to understand like 
you need more than that one therapist, first of all. You really do need a multidisciplinary care team. And, and this was a care team that my family hobbled together when I was 10. And then frankly, again, when I was uh, 15, I didn't do traditional FBT. I kind of had multiple different providers that my mom was the care coordinator for. You know, she had to kind of piece together everything that they were saying. Thankfully, again, none of them took insurance. No providers take insurance because the demand just so outpaces the supply. So thankfully, we're able to afford them out of pocket. And then I think, you know, really critically had a peer, Leanna, um, someone who had was a little bit further along in the recovery process than me. And she was my motivator. She was the one who kept me going. When I was going through this, people said to me all the time, you don't get better from this. This is an illness you'll always struggle with. I didn't meet anybody who has recovered ever. It felt like, okay, if it's not even possible, like, why would I do all this hard work to get better if recovery is not even possible? And so being able, I remember many a time where I was in a therapy session and it was really hard and I was really struggling and I'd run out and I'd call Leanna crying and she could understand, empathize, but also had the ability to push me towards health in a way that nobody else could. My parents couldn't, my therapist couldn't. Like just the power of having someone who'd been there was so incredibly motivating for helping me along in the journey. And I really, really attribute it to staying in the journey. Because as you know, eating disorder recovery takes a long time and it's really, really, really friggin' hard. And so you need that motivation. And there's nothing like people who've been there and can show you like, I know how much this sucks. Keep going. It's possible. It's worth it to keep you on the other side of that. And frankly, my mom begged for that. Like she tried to start a family support group for years in New York City. And it was impossible. She like could not find other parents who, you know, were going through this. And it was so it would have been so valuable for her to have that support. She really craved it because this is really hard on caregivers, right? Caregiving for any illness, mental, physical on caregivers is is really hard. But I think eating disorders, because they are so challenging and difficult, and again, back to a core part of the eating disorder, is kind of recovery being ambivalence at best and sort of that waxing and waning motivation. And oftentimes, especially with an adolescent, your loved one literally fighting you. Um, and then the added stigma of this is an illness in which we still blame the parents. It's like one of the last mental illnesses that we still blame the families for causing it. You're not getting that social support like you would if your kid had cancer and the doors would be open, you know, with neighbors bringing you casseroles. Like you don't get that in eating disorder treatment. And so I think that would have been so incredibly invaluable. So that was one thing, this like multidisciplinary care team covered by insurance. That's huge. If we're talking about access for all, like we need insurance companies to cover this and to cover it for a good amount of time to enable people to really recover. The best research says that your best chance of a strong and lasting recovery is once you get to that place of nutritional rehabilitation, staying with your same care team for six to 12 months afterwards. That's not at all possible in today's landscape. And so we really educated insurance companies on the necessity of that, and they pay for a year or more of the treatment. And so what that allows us to do is, you know, get people to a place of nutritional rehabilitation, let them stay in relapse prevention, and also work on all of the comorbidities that, of course, exist with the eating disorder. You never have an eating disorder in isolation. So we get to work on the anxiety, the depression, the OCD, the PTSD, the substance use disorder. And it's working on these things concurrently while you're maintaining recovery that is absolutely, absolutely vital. And then I think probably the most critical missing piece of my recovery was 
the necessity of being equipped to fight diet culture for the rest of my life. You know, when we talked about sort of the body image stuff, people just always said like, oh, that goes like many, many years later. Like, don't expect that to get better for a really long time. And it, it is true. Like that is, I think, the, the hardest thing to go and let go of. But you really have to prepare people because you are entering a world that is unfortunately just swimming in diet culture and literally yelling at us all of the things that our eating disorder used to yell at us. Like eating disorder behaviors and thinking are so friggin' normalized in this society. And it became super clear to me. Like I always say, I'm very cognizant that I'm in a smaller, more societally acceptable body. And recovery was the hardest thing I've ever done in my whole entire life. And so really learning from peers of mine, the majority of people with eating disorders who are not in smaller bodies, it is a daily active fight to maintain recovery when your doctors are telling you you need to lose weight. People around you are telling you you need to lose weight, that they're worried about your health. Like, it is it is impossible, frankly, <laughs> to recover into this world without really steeping yourself in the ability to fight back against diet culture. And frankly, not just you, but that's this is again where bringing in the people around you because you go back to environments where you need to have a community of folks, and you know it's really your family, whether that's family of origin or family of choice. Who, who really understands that it can help you when it gets really hard to reinforce the messages of why this is, you know, bullshit and why you need to continue to fight back for your own health. Wow. Yeah. First off, I just love this idea of a multidisciplinary care team where and then where you're empowering the family in the recovery process, meaning that they also get support because as, as we know, when, when you're in the depths of an eating disorder, it, it's not like you. It's It's like a it's like you're you're missing that spark or the, it's just like the it's this you're a shell of yourself yeah it, it, it says things that are goes against its own values or in and it can be so difficult to to work yeah. with that and imagine you know your your loving child and you're just like this thing's demonic <laughs> like, yep. How, do yep. I, how do i and you can't tell, you know you have to find your own support because that's hard and and having compassion for the caregivers and and for their own helplessness and powerlessness in their their child's helplessness and powerlessness. It just yeah. seems like that's an underlying emotion that people are feeling. And I think with caregivers too, we approach it from a very like non-shaming, non-blaming. We always say parents do not cause eating disorders. Families do not cause eating disorders. They are the number one like best supporter in the recovery process. And that doesn't mean that families are doing everything perfectly, right? Like one, when your loved one is in crisis, you're not your best self. And two, we all grow up in this fucked up diet culture. Mm. Um, and so it makes sense that like our families, our communities come with some of their own baggage around health and weight that has usually gone back a really long time. And so the best thing that you can do there is, again, not shame, not blame, normalize. Like, we get it. It's not your fault. We've all been swimming in this nasty sea. And in order to help your child, your loved one recover, you're going to need to really work on that. And it, I think one of the most beautiful aspects of the program is really inviting families in to do that body image empowerment work and fighting back against diet culture with other families going through it who can really say, look, like, 
I was that parent, you know, feeding my daughter fettuccine Alfredo while I was sitting there eating a side salad and like still trying to lose the last 10 pounds. And I I have compassion for myself because I know where that came from. But I also really had to look at myself in the mirror and say, like, if you want your loved one to get better, this really can't continue. And that powerful transformation, that's what like equips people to recover for a lifetime, because you're, you're gonna you're gonna encounter that in real life, unfortunately, all the time, hopefully, we'll, we're, do, we're doing upstream work and, you know, trying to fight it every day. But it, it's going to be a while until diet culture is really taken down. And in the meantime, we really need to help people to be equipped to fight it for their whole life. It's cool when the family system can be on board with it, though, like they're changing their values around health and, and wellness. And so it's it's kind of like a shared language you can have as opposed to the shared language of dieting or body defects and flaws. And it's so helpful for, you know, so many people. I mean, when I, you know, met my husband, like he didn't have an eating disorder, but he had his own stuff around food and exercise and, you know, just like stuff that you get from the culture, nobody is immune to it. And, you know, being part of this like eating disorder healing community, he will tell you like his relationship with food and body has changed so much for the better um, in our own relationship. And it's also great for him to like really have knowledge of, hey, if I get the flu for two weeks, like, we're going to be having a lot of ice cream and butter. Like, you know, like this is just really necessary to have people around you who have that understanding and awareness of the dangers of going into negative caloric deficit and also like the bullshit of diet culture in the world and who, who can fight that with you is is really valuable. Yeah, it's it's kind of like this counterculture movement that that you're creating that we're all creating and it needs to be created there needs to be this non-conformity to these unrealistic beauty standards that are just perpetuated by systems of oppression <laughs> like it's absolutely absurd and you think about too like I think oftentimes the last like five or ten pounds are really really hard for everyone and continue to remind myself of like what are those last five to 10 pounds? It's, you know, freedom. It's being able to go out to pizza and ice cream with your friends and not think about it. It's brain space. It's like all of these things. And looking beyond the eating disorder fields, I really do think that so much of the population is probably walking around five to 10 pounds less than their body wants to be. And it's like, for what? (laughs) You know, like how much are you missing out because of those like five to 10 pounds, how much are you missing of, of life? How much more anxious and depressed and like compulsive are you being? Like how much better would your life be if you just let go of these bullshit rules? Yeah. Cause there, the science shows that when you are underweight, not even severely underweight, but it kicks in, like you're saying, like these brain disorders kicks in, increases anxiety, increases depression. That's why so many people see an alleviation of these mood disorders, I'm not not completely absolved, but an alleviation in them when they do have weight restoration. Absolutely. And I love that you call out like underweight for your body because most people with eating disorders are not technically underweight as a, like as measured by the crap BMI metrics. Yeah. But even if you are five pounds less than where your body wants to be, yeah, it's going to increase depression and anxiety. And and this is also where having that multidisciplinary care team and the dietitian can come back and like setting goal weights, really looking at your growth patterns, your history. Like the reality is if you are always on 
the 80th percentile for weight, that's probably where your body wants to be, you know, like, and you're probably going to be in that starvation mode where your body's not happy if you're under that, even though you're not technically underweight. And, you know, that is hard for a lot of people living in our society. And it's really important to, again, set yourself up for recovery for life. And having that multidisciplinary care team, I think is really valuable there. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that, you know, families are not to, to blame. That's kind of part of, of your philosophy. And, and that does help empower the, the family members to not be like, ah, because when you're feeling blamed, you're feeling attacked. And it just doesn't create this like environment to really want to work together. At the same time, you did say that they're brain disorders. So I would like to kind of just add in this, but there has to be some genetic underpinning then, right? So not to blame, but to kind of be like, hey, thanks for the genes. 100%. 100%. Blame great, 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 great grandma. Like, who knows, you know? And so, but, you know, I'm curious with with the genetic underpinnings, like what you guys have found, because you do a ton of research to back your clinical work that you're doing. You know, there's not one gene that we, the the royal scientific, we have found, but a a number of different uh, genes and alleles that contribute to this. um, We found on genome-wide association studies, and then also this set of neurobiological temperament traits. So finding that people who are prone to eating disorders tend to exhibit this kind of more perfectionism, more type A, the ability to hyper-focus on a goal and narrow out distractions is a really good example. We know that people who are prone to eating disorders are more, uh, or anorexia in particular, are more motivated by consequences than rewards. And so that's really good to understand. Like buying your loved one a car is not going <laughs> to get them better from an eating disorder. It's, but actually, like saying you're not going to be able to go to school for this week unless you, you know, are doing what you need to be doing is actually really motivating. And that's, you know, one way that we use it. There's also something uh, that we know for people with eating disorders, it's poor interoceptive awareness, so kind of a fancy way of saying you don't really understand your bodily states well when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you need to go to the bathroom. Um, so these are typically, you know, think back to the kids who could like study their fatigue, play through pain. Um, again, like all good temperament traits, but when you put them all together with this hyper focus on your body and yourself, um, it is oftentimes can have really negative consequences. And on the flip side, I think people hearing, certainly for me, when I recognized that, okay, this is not my fault. This is like, just like I, you know, my family is prone to breast cancer or, you know, diabetes, like my family is prone to mental health, addiction and eating disorders. And that doesn't mean that I always need to struggle. It means that there's a series of things that I need to be really aware of and I know how to I need to know how to take care of myself. And also these are really good traits. Like these are not all bad. It's just like learning how to harness them for good. And I, I remember like I while I work a lot to be calmer and slower. It is my life's work to try to meditate more and just really like slow down. I think if you could sum it up. I, it was sort of motivating to be like, hey, you're probably always going to have a little bit of this like anxiety, go-getter attitude. And like, that's okay. That doesn't mean you always have to have anorexia. That just means like, how can we utilize these superpowers in a really positive way? And I think that's really motivating for um, most of the people that we work with. Yeah. It's not that you're inherently flawed. Like there's ways that you can channel this 
in, in when you channel it away from the eating disorder, you can find whatever that path is. Totally. Attention to detail and uh, being very empathic and sensing people's mm-hmm. you know needs ahead of their own awareness of them and little things like that. Now, how I'm so curious, like how do you take care of yourself now? Because you are in a very you know demanding role emotionally, physically. You know, I mean, you're a CEO of this big company. Like, how have you been able to to manage your own self care and and be able to to prioritize yourself? <laughs> it's very it's a wonderful question, um, and it's a it's a work in progress always and a non linear journey. Um, I think that definitely is something about recovering publicly into the world at 15 and then sort of like growing up in the spotlight and just learning so much more. I think so many people had told me like they didn't resonate with the language of fully recovered and particularly my peers who didn't fit the stereotype who were in larger bodies. You know, I remember often, you know, one of them saying to me like recovery is like a daily active commitment for me as someone who's in a fat body, like the world just until the world treats me better and views me better. Like it is going to be a daily active struggle. And I think that I began to see and understand that more because of what we're talking about regarding diet culture and how pervasive it is. Like, you know, when I went to college, uh, excessive exercise was like so normalized on my college campus and it had never been part of my eating disorder and started as like a really healthy coping mechanism. And then like anything, like I'm a compulsive person. And so it started to borderline on like compulsive and like not great. And so I had to, thankfully I had good peers around me who knew about my history and could be like, Hey, this is seeming a little bit obsessive. Let's like pull back and walk and do yoga rather than run. Right. (laughs) And that was really, really helpful. But I think as I grew up and like recovered publicly from 15 to 30, I have much more humility around recovery and I actually identify more with like in a strong and active recovery. And it sort of means the same thing at the end of the day. Like my brain is free for so many other things outside of food and body. I have a pretty good relationship with food and body. I eat, you know, what I want when I need to and am flexible around it. I, you know, I care more about the conversation that I'm having over meals than, you know, what I'm eating. I enjoy going out to dinner. All those things are the same. But I also have an awareness that like I am someone who is genetically prone to an eating disorder. And so that means that I can't get into negative caloric deficit. I can never go on a diet. I can never on a scale. I probably won't train for a marathon. Uh, you know, just like things that would put me at risk of negative caloric deficit are things that I have to be conscious and wary of. And I, I think it's I wish I had had that knowledge. I think it was really lacking in my treatment that, like, hey, like you're going to go through hard times. And also like your body needs to continue to gain weight. You're not like done at 15. Like you need to continue to grow and gain weight and mature. Like you should not be the same weight or the same size at 15, at 18, at 21, at 23, at 30. Right. And I think that was just a missing piece of my journey and a lot of, a lot of people's journeys. And so back to the question of like, how do you, how do you take care of yourself? One, I think I just have great folks in my life. Like my husband is a great supporter and very aware of sort of the, all of the science behind eating disorders and aware that, yeah, if I got the flu, we're going to like, you know, make sure to get me back to baseline in a, in a quick way. I definitely still struggle with anxiety. I 
take Zoloft has been really, really helpful in my own recovery journey. And frankly, that also was something that I didn't get on Zoloft until I was like 22. Um, I was on a whole host of like cocktail of medications when I was in and out of treatment and then kind of got off of all of them. And it wasn't until I was 22 that a dear friend said like, you might benefit from just like a little bit of, (laughs) you know, this might take the edge off a lot. And it really did. And I like wish that was something in my treatment, given how comorbid these are that somebody had suggested or educated me on because it really has taken the edge off a little bit and made me a lot more relaxed. I go in and out of therapy, like during more stressful periods of my life, I have a therapist that I will reconnect with. And I think that's really healthy to have like a person that you can that you can go to. I also have an executive coach. So kind of like a therapist for CEOs. Uh, she's basically a therapist. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's really, really helpful as well. And then, you know, like I, I do try to meditate every day. I do try to journal, um, you know, things of that nature. I think, as I mentioned, the constant life work for me is going to be slowing down. This is, you know, my, my eating disorder gone good causes me to be like a go-getter and really productive. And that's been awesome. And like, you also got to be okay, like taking your foot off the gas pedal. And that's something that candidly, like I continue to, to work on every day. Wow. I love how transparent you are and just conscious, like conscious of this, this shadow side or this part of you that maybe isn't serving you the best, but does have some things that does help you kind of excel, accelerate, I guess, because you're not slowing down. So, uh, totally. And just to be open about, you know, like that you do see a therapist and that you are taking these medications because there's still so much stigma. It's almost like, okay, you're recovered. That means you shouldn't need any more support. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, mm-hmm. it's important to, to do this prevention work. You know, we talk about prevention, early prevention, detection of eating disorders. Well, then there's the maintenance and prevention of getting back into the cycle. Thank you. Well, I think it's important. And yeah, there is unfortunately like way too much stigma still wrapped up in it. And also I think about like, I am someone who very much prioritizes continuous self-growth and you know, like it would be so boring if I had had it figured all figured out at 15 or at 18 or at 12 or at 30, right? Like there's still a lot of stuff that I have yet to like go through and learn and like continue to peel back the layers. And so that's something else that I kind of really like about this, like in a strong and active recovery is that sometimes I think folks use recovered period to be like, I'm done. You know, and it's like, no, 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 no. Like you have a whole life. Like you should be continuing to peel back that onion and learn about yourself and grow. Like that's a that's a life journey that we're all on. For sure. Yeah. We're not recovered from life. <laughs> it's still happening. <laughs> Last time I checked. All right. Yeah, we're doing it. It's on. <laughs> oh. Christina, well, it's just been such a pleasure uh, connecting with you. And I just want to kind of end here with a few few questions. And this one I think is kind of fun is just to Finish the following statement with your first thought, your gut reaction, no right or wrong here, but just to kind of go with what what feels right in the moment. So starting off with connection is. Connection is knowing you're a part of something larger than yourself. Body image is. Body image is how you relate to and value and take care of your physical being. Diet culture is. Diet culture is the unfortunate crap that we swim in that (laughs) normalizes glorifying thinness and pathologizing fatness and makes recovery a whole lot harder for everybody. 
recovery is? Recovery is when you have brain space and energy for so many more important and interesting things other than food in your body. How can all the listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about Equip? Best way is to go to our website, www.equip.health. We have lots of resources, blog posts for people who are struggling, for the people who love them. Um, And then obviously, you can get in touch with us about getting started on your treatment journey. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Christina, for the incredible work that you're doing and putting out into the world and the way you're changing the treatment landscape. I so appreciate your mission, what your team is doing, and the difference that you're making. It is it is needed. And thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Right back at you. It's uh, really, really an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at Equip.health.